values, and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks for being here. Um, we're going to do Did You Hear This coming up at 1120, as we do each day. Um, and I'm going to get to this, uh, what we're talking about with schools and COVID in a minute. But I want to I want to touch on something we, I just heard in the newscast for the first time as Jeff was reporting it. and had to do with a law, with a judge st- stopping a law that's supposed to go into effect that would stop people from videotaping within eight feet of a police officer. I've talked about this for a while. Um, uh, John Cavanaugh, who was a former law enforcement officer in New York, I think he was with the Port Authority Police for years is now in the state legislature. It was a law that he had written. And uh, I'm not someone that wants to tell somebody else how to do their job. And I'm certainly not criticizing here. If I were writing that law, it would have had nothing to do with videotaping. Nothing to do with videotaping. I would have written the law and it should have said you cannot be unless you are directly involved or invited in. You cannot be within eight feet of a police incident. So I would have written it. You got to keep a distance. That's for everybody's safety. That's for everybody's safety. And to me, that would have maybe solved some of this. There may have been challenges, but I don't know that it's unreasonable. For anybody out there, how is it unreasonable? If you're in somebody's space, you don't, I don't want somebody in my space. You know, and, and you say, well, eight feet away is pretty far away. It is. But when you are an officer and you are one of the things that police officers train to stay away from is being tunnel visioned because it happens to all of us. Um, when uh, police officers are in a foot chase and they have to cross the street, they are trained to still look both ways because you get tunnel visioned into who you're chasing. And that's when people get run over. If you see how many times criminals are running from the police on a bicycle or they're running on foot and they get run over because they're tunnel vision, they're not looking at their surroundings. Police officers, when they're in a chase in a vehicle, when they are driving after someone or driving at a, at a high rate of speed going to a scene, they train to see the things around them. That's something they train for because naturally we get tunnel vision into what's right in front of us because your adrenaline's going crazy. When you're involved in a situation where you've pulled your weapon, you pulled a firearm, one of the things that you and I would look at would be the threat. We are pointing our gun at a threat. Police officers focus on the threat and the surroundings so that if they already have to use their weapon, They're not endangering innocent people that could be injured by their gunfire. So it's something that is is not um, automatically known. It's something that's learned, and they do this over time. And I I expanded on that answer because when you are at the scene of a crime or when you are affecting an arrest, um, or even if you go the other direction, if you are saving a life and you're laser focused on what's in front of you, it's dangerous. You've got your back to the public. Uh, there's a video that's out there of, of a situation. Thank God nobody was severely injured. But a teenage girl attacked police officers making an arrest. Police officers in an apartment complex were pulling kids out of a stolen car. And this girl ran up behind a police officer and tried to um, in, in, uh, intervene in this arrest. And then she attacked a female police officer and she got punched in the face. Well, she hit a cop. She hit a couple of cops. It's a dangerous situation to be in, and I don't know that anybody would dispute that. And I I also would go as far – and and you can't infringe on someone's rights, but I don't think this does. But I also don't think that there's any good reason, and that's not a legal – this is just my own – obviously, it's not not a legal defense. 
that you don't have any good reason to be there. But to be within eight feet of an active arrest or a police situation puts the officer on notice and possibly in danger. Uh, if, are you trying to intervene in stopping this? One of the biggest dangers, and it may not be uh, necessarily um, – pertain to this particular law. But one of the most dangerous situations for law enforcement is domestic violence situations. A, it's very, very emotional, obviously. But many times what happens is when one person says my husband or my wife or whatever attacked me, when the police intervene and there is a mandatory arrest that has to happen, the person that called originally didn't want their husband or their wife arrested. They just wanted the situation diffused. But once there is evidence of of physical violence, they're required to make the arrest. It is no longer the choice of the person that called. This is now you are now being arrested by the city of Phoenix or by the state of Arizona, whatever. There is an arrest that has to be made. And many times when that happens, the person that was victimized, they are the ones that are on the offensive and attack the police. It is a dangerous situation because of how high the emotions are. So keeping people eight feet away keeps everybody safer. And I don't, to be honest with you, I have no idea how the distance of eight feet affects anybody's rights. You can hear everything that's being said. You can see everything that's being done. You can videotape and audio tape all of that from eight feet away. How this affects people's First Amendment rights, I don't understand. But I wonder, and this is just now my curiosity – If this law had been written in a way that had nothing to do with videotaping, if the law was we want to when you say you have to maintain a safe distance, what exactly is a safe distance? Because I can tell you from people that were there recently, we had a guy popping off rounds with a rifle at a hotel at 26th Avenue and uh, Deer Valley Road in the North Valley. Hundreds of rounds were being fired. Um, And so the press showed up to be there. They were probably a quarter to a half a mile away. That's a safe distance. Do you mean to tell me that the press should have been allowed to be within eight feet of the police while that was going on videotaping it? Again, that's what is the safe distance? You know, it may be different for different things. You're at the scene of a major fire. Um. And uh, there, you know, there have been some some major fires here in the valley, not forest fires, but building fires. Uh, The media, should they be able to be within eight feet of firefighters as they're trying to to extinguish uh, a fire or or a chemical leak or whatever else? So I don't know the principle here. Is it because videotaping was named? I wonder if there's some and I'm going to start asking some questions. I would love to talk to some people that know this as lawyers. I would love to ask their opinion if this law had been written and maybe they go back and rewrite it without mentioning videotaping if they say the safe distance minimum is eight feet for a police incident if the police are dragging somebody out of a stolen car if there is a fight if somebody's resisting arrest and you want to whip out your phone or you want to just whatever you want to do you have to do it from at least eight feet away i don't see how that's a problem I don't know how that infringes on anyone's rights, but if you had taken the videotaping part of it out, would this give less credibility to this lawsuit? And we're going to find out because this law is being challenged and a judge now is stopping this law from going into effect at least for a short time. Coming up in a moment. Uh, We are going to get you caught up on the biggest news stories of the day. We call it. Did you hear this? It happens next. Next. 
strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Very, very busy news day. Let's get you caught up. Did you hear this? Did you hear this? Broomhead's reaction to the hottest news stories. Yesterday, Yuma Mayor Doug Nichols joined the Gators and Chad show and talked about one of the positives of the new border containers. It gives Border Patrol more of a, of a single point, if you will, to engage people as they cross the border. Do you believe these containers will continue to help the agents? Yeah, I think that we're hearing from the experts in the field that it is something that is funneling people in a different direction. They have less holes to fill. So law enforcement can focus on areas now where they are heading to. That is a, it is a help. It is not going to be the answer to the problem. There's no way that we can solve that problem. We can't solve that problem as a state. But what it is able, what it is doing is it is funneling people to another location where there are less holes to be watched. There's only so that reduces the number of places and you can have agents in a specific location. The people in the field, the supervisor, the mayor, the people from uh, Border Protection, from CBP are all saying that this is assisting. So yes, I think it's doing a good job. It's doing exactly what they said they wanted it to do. Continuing with the border, Washington, D.C. Councilwoman Brianna Nadow says Arizona and Texas have created a problem. The governors of Texas and Arizona have created this crisis. And the federal government has not stepped up to assist the District of Columbia. So we, um, along with our regional partners, will do what we've always done. We'll rise to the occasion. Who created this crisis? Well, the, the crisis that she's talking about, she's saying is being created by the governors of Arizona and Texas. The crisis itself, we know... It was not created, to be fair, it was not created by Joe Biden. But it's been made worse by the policies of this administration. It's worse than it's ever been. You're talking about millions of people crossing the border, over 700 people, about 750 people dying, trying to cross into America. It is the deadliest year that we've ever had. The southern border of the United States, I think for the first time ever, has been now declared the most dangerous land crossing in the world. And it is directly related to the policies of this White House. So the response from Texas and Arizona and now Florida is that then we will send some of these people the way you're sending them to us. We're going to send them to some of your cities, your sanctuary cities, and see how you like it. And we're seeing that they don't like it at all. You are listening to Did You Hear This? We do it every day at this time to get you caught up on the headlines. King Charles III delivered remarks today and spoke of overcoming changes. To all changes and challenges, our nation and the wider family of realms of whose talents, traditions, and achievements I am so inexpressibly proud. What kind of changes do you think will come with England's new monarch? Well, there are some specific changes that we talked about a little earlier that are definitely going to happen. Uh, Their national anthem will no longer be God Save the Queen. It is now God Save the King. Uh, They will change their currency. The pound note will change, and they will not get rid of everything right away. But as they phase new currency in and old currency out, it will be pictures of the king and not of the queen. Responsibilities change. He goes from being the Prince of Wales to the King of England. And then you will see his son, who will then ascend to the position of being the Prince of Wales. And so all of these changes and responsibilities that they each will have and what new things they bring to bring to the job. The queen has been the queen for over 70 years, but Prince Charles was, well, he's now King Charles. Prince Charles was the Prince of Wales for over 50 years. Of course that job is going to change because because a younger, new person is going to be in that role. So there will be quite a few changes. I don't know how it affects the rest of the world, but it certainly will uh, will uh, it will change Great Britain. 
on the show we've been reflecting on 9-11. So, Mike, I want to ask you, what do you remember about that day? Oh, wow. Um... Uh, I remember I was I had gotten up to get ready to go to work and my mother called me, which was rare for my mom to call me in the morning. She lives in Florida and are you know hours ahead of us. And I remember her calling me and asking me if I if she said, did you hear about a plane hitting the World Trade Center? And I said, no. She said, turn on your TV. And I said, what channel? She said, any channel. And I turned on the television and uh, I watched what was unfolding and then I saw the second plane hit and everybody was just stunned. The world was stunned. We knew then we were under attack and as we learned more about that day, a plane into the Pentagon, uh, 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 people on an airplane uh, took it down in, in Shanksville, Pennsylvania as opposed to allowing it to what they thought was going after the Capitol or the White House realizing that our nation was under attack and it wasn't just that day, it was the days that followed for me. The days that followed when we felt vulnerable for the first time. There were trailways, buses being pulled over by the highway patrol. They were concerned about Amtrak trains. They grounded all air traffic. It changed everything about who we are in America because for the first time, we didn't know where the next attack was coming from. And I don't think Americans were used to having that kind of fear. That is what I remember most about 9-11. Thanks, Julia. And uh, um, we'll do this again on Monday, of course. We do it every day during the show at 11.20. Um, what we are going to do in the final half hour of the show is we've had, um, graciously, we've had guests come on that have uh, deep connections directly to 9-11. And this year, all of them that I talked with were New York. And it's not always planned that way, but these are the stories of impact that I wanted you to hear. And so we, if you missed some of them, uh, Mike McAvoy, whose brother was perished, who was a firefighter in lower Manhattan with Ladder 3. His best friend, Jimmy Ladley, worked in the towers. He perished that day. Um, Mike Angeloni joined us. Uh, Mike and I have known each other for well over a decade. We worked together in construction. He built a very successful construction business. And uh, Mike is a retired FDNY in the 90s and went back right after the day after 9-11, got into New York and spent 12 days in search and rescue on the rubble. He talked with us with some compelling uh, insight uh, insights into the story. And then uh, we talked with Lieutenant Klett, uh, Timothy Klett, who is uh, a firefighter for 40 years working in Manhattan, and his insight on the rebuilding of that agency of how many firefighters. They lost, what, 343 firefighters, uh, 71 law enforcement officers, uh, 147. There was a total of 2,192 people that died that day. And we're going to talk a lot about what happened on 9-11 in the World Trade Centers. And that was just in the World Trade Centers. So uh, we'll do that in the final half hour of the show. If you want to hear some of those comments in full, you can go get them on the podcast after the show. But we're going to share some thoughts and let you hear some insight next. Strong values and strong opinions. We really the do. Mike Broomhead Show. KTAR News, 92.3 FM and the KTAR News app. If tomorrow all the things were gone, I'd work for all my life. And I 
Hey, thanks for being here today. Um, just my children and my I want to spend uh, the last part of the show reflecting and and I, not in, not to be depressed. I want to talk about how 9/11 changed the world. And it absolutely has changed the world. Um, I want you to start I want to start here with uh, something uh, this is where the entire world began to change even when we didn't know it yet. This is air traffic conversation with American Flight 11. American 11, are you trying to call? The cockpit is not answering their phone. Our number one is in staff and our five is in staff. Hey, I'm going to call from Washington. Hey, I have a situation with American 11, the possible hijack. What's going on, Betty? The traffic is erratic again. American Flight 11 left um, uh, Logan Airport in Boston, and it collided with the North Tower at 8.46 a.m. on the East Coast. 8.46 a.m. Um, a short time later at 9.03, um, the South Tower was hit by another airplane. Uh, the South Tower was the second tower that was struck by an aircraft, but it was the first to collapse. It collapsed at 9.59 a.m., just before 10 a.m., um, and at 10.28, about 30 minutes later, the North Tower then collapsed. Um, in New York, in the World Trade Centers, about 2,763 people were killed. Um, it included uh, over 2,100, almost 2,200 civilians, 343 firefighters, 71 law enforcement officers. Um, it was just a day of devastation and shock to the entire world. I want you to hear how the confusion went because at the time, um, uh, people were so confused about a hijacked airplane and then a plane hitting the towers. And this was just a little bit of the voices in the confusion. So the guest we had on this morning, we had a, a Mike McAvoy who joins me every year. Uh, Mike and I, unfortunately, um, for the circumstances, but fortunately for me, Mike and I became friends years ago uh, as I was asked to be a part of and help um, – be the master of ceremonies and put on events commemorating 9-11 and that's where Mike and I met and he has become a dear friend and, and uh, one of the most patriotic individuals I've ever known uh, lost two of the people he loved most that day um, he lost his brother John and he lost his best friend Jimmy his brother was a firefighter his best friend worked in the towers for a company called Canner Fitzgerald and uh, we talked this morning with him and Mike, and this is, you couldn't write a movie script this way. Mike worked in Brooklyn and um, told the story this morning um, about seeing the second plane hit or the people there seeing the second plane hit. Um, and that's when he knew in an instant that it was terrorism. This is just a little bit about the moments when McAvoy realized what was happening. Nobody thought that it was a giant commercial jet. You know, people think, I'm thinking, wow, well, you know, it had to be some small jet, maybe the wind blew it into the trade center, whatever. And as I'm sitting at my, I didn't, I didn't even think to get up. As I'm sitting at my desk, more people go by and I heard someone say, we think it's a commercial airline. And I got up and I walked over to the windows. Like I said, we had a perfect view of the trade center. We weren't that far away. And oh my gosh, to see, to see that smoke uh, billowing out of the building, 
And he said the first person he thought of was his best friend, Jimmy, because he knew Jimmy worked in that tower. First person I thought of was my best friend, Jimmy. Uh, he worked on the 104th floor of the World Trade Center, and it was the one that got hit. Uh, and I ran back to my desk, you know, and tried calling him and calling him. Now, the, the people have to remember what it was like in 2001. Your cell phone wasn't what it is today. So who knew if it was in his desk or he left it in his car? I mean, it wasn't as, you know, it was basically a phone back then, and, and that was it. And I'm sitting there, I'm calling, I'm calling, I'm getting no answer. And um, I thought, you know, maybe he's home today. And then the unthinkable happened. I walked back over to the window to see what was going on, and I'm walking down this hallway, and there's file cabinets, and just as I turned, it was, the whole office was in front of the windows, right? People screamed, and people literally fell to the floor, because now the second plane hit. And I yelled, what, what happened? They said, a plane hit the other building. And Mike, to this day, hearing that, remembering that scene right there, you know, 21 years ago, I remember I got so nauseous. And some more significance from that day. Um, this is uh, a 911 operator um, trying to calm someone down um, that worked, uh, that was stuck on the 83rd floor. I'm on the 83rd floor. I'm going to die. No, 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 no. I'm going to die. Ma'am, 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 say your prayers. We're going to think positive because you got to help each other get off the floor. Now. One of thousands. I have watched so many documentaries, uh, and some of them are so compelling and so harrowing. Um, it was amazing to hear stories from uh, Mike McAvoy's perspective about his loss that day and about his brother, my friend Mike, Mike Angeloni, who we're going to – I'll let you hear a little bit of what Angeloni had to say in a few minutes. But then to speak for the first time with someone that was there that is also still with the fire department. This is a guy. His name is uh, Timothy Klett, Lieutenant Klett, who um, has been a firefighter for 40 years, 31 of them with uh, FDNY. And not only was a part of what happened, like all firefighters were on 9-11, but also uh, promoted and uh, was then helped train and helped to mentor new firefighters as they had to replace the 343 that were lost in that agency that day. Um, and uh, it was incredible to hear this story of what firefighters were doing um, as they were going into the towers. I know that a lot of people, you know, you hear a lot of stories from friends of mine of, of you know, one that survived and one didn't, shaking hands in the lobby saying, hey, uh, I hope to see you when this is all over. Another guy saying, hey, I don't think I'm going to see you again. Uh, but they still went and did their job. I mean, extraordinary, extraordinary bravery um, by those men that were in that building that day. It was uh, it was a sad day in America, but it was it showed the courage of the men and women that serve as first responders, not just in New York City, but across the country. People from Phoenix, Arizona, firefighters going to help um, the search and rescue, and, and it was just a time where the nation mourned but came together. Uh, more before we close the show out, in just a couple of moments, I want you to be able to hear some more of uh, our guest, Mike Angeloni, who joined us today, who is back in New York right now for the memorial ceremonies that are going on. And uh, I want to finish off with you being able to hear from the heroes from that day. So we'll do that coming up in just a moment. Strong value.
values, and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Thanks for being here. Uh, a few minutes left in the show. Um, this Sunday is the 21st anniversary of the attacks on 9-11, and we spend each year we spend some time on the show reflecting because I think it's still an important day for all of us to remember and to make sure we remember it um, in a way that's respectful of those that sacrificed so much on that day but where our country has come in for so long. Um, and uh, I, I want you to I want you to hear my friend Mike Angeloni was such a great story and such a great guy. I met Mike working in construction. He was a general contractor and I was a subcontractor that worked with him for years. And there isn't a more hardworking guy and a guy you would follow anywhere. He just is a great leader. And um, I heard his story over the years of being retired FDNY. And, and uh, after 9-11, he was able to get back into New York, uh, into New York. But I want you to hear the beginnings of this talking about 9-11. And, and what it meant to him. I pulled right into Bandera, saw it on the TV, you know, watched my uh, my knees buckle when I saw the first tower go down, and I headed right back home thinking I was going to try and get to New York, whether it be on a plane or just jump in a truck and start driving. So he did. He got on an airplane. His wife was able to get him flights, uh, a flight into uh, into Long Island, and then his friends picked him up, and, and he went through nine FBI checkpoints to get there and go to work on what they called the pit um, at the time, and it was a rescue mission while he was there, and this was a little description from Mike. I mean, you just felt like it was something you had to do, but at the time and the days went on, it was more and more discouraging because... You know, we didn't find very much. Um, and I remember I was there for about 36 hours, and at that point it dawned on me to call my wife because I hadn't even, you know, spoken to her since I left home. And, um, you know, she was just heartbroken when she heard my voice and how I sounded. And, and to be honest, I, I've known Mike for years, and I'm heartbroken listening to him tell his story today in his voice. This is—he's never somber like he was on the air. And I know this year, every year is so tough when he goes back. Uh, but this is uh, a description of how we should remember uh, the fire department. I always say to people, you know, when they talk about how many guys we lost, I always try and turn it around and say, well, I want you to stop for a minute and think about how many people we saved and how many people we got out of those buildings. And that's how I'd like you to remember the fire department. I think that epitomizes um, first responders across the country, um, probably across the world. Isn't it interesting that they lost 343 firefighters that day? Uh, Mike himself, I'm talking about Mike Angeloni, lost, he said, 30 close friends. Many more that he knew for years and years and years, but 30 close friends that day. And he turns it around and says, yeah, but look at how many people we saved. And... If that doesn't explain the heart of a first responder, those people that run into a situation while the rest of us are running out, I I don't know what does. Um, I've heard so many stories of of heroism. One of the things – and I'll watch the documentaries again this weekend, at least some of them. But one in particular, they were filming a documentary uh, that had nothing to do with uh, 9-11 because it hadn't happened yet. And they were a film crew, a documentary crew was with this with this chief at the time. 
He was a battalion chief, and they were in lower Manhattan, and they were uh, looking for a gas leak, and so they were filming all of this when the first plane hit, and everything changed. They jumped in their vehicles. They headed straight for the World Trade Center, and at the time, they thought it was an accident, you know, and they made their way into what was command the command center in the lobby. He was the chief in charge at the time, and then as the day went on and the second plane hit, um, they were standing in the lobby, and it, more and more firefighters were coming in with their tanks and, and masks and gear and full turnout gear and uh, carrying axes and other th- other equipment, hoses, and uh, they were shaking hands in the lobby, and they were saying goodbye to each other. We hope – I hope I see you again. If not, it's been great working with you. But this weird thing that continued to happen, and they didn't have to describe it. You knew it immediately when it happened was this horrible bang on the roof. And it was people jumping, 110 stories. I mean, this 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 place, this these buildings were 110 stories. And instead of burning to death, people jumped to their death, and they were landing on the roof of where these firefighters were. And it would happen every you know few seconds or half a minute or whatever. And every time it happened, the place went silent for half a second, and everybody kind of shuddered. And then they went back to work. And I, from those documentaries, that's what I remember. But I want to finish it by saying this. Um, We change as a country, um, and for a short time, we became united. I believe our enemies saw us as a divided nation because we fight in the front yard. Americans fight in the front yard, not the backyard. And so they see us as lazy. They see us as entitled. They see us as rich, and they see us as big babies. And they thought if they attacked us like this, we would fall apart. And what we proved to them on that time or at that time was it brought us closer together. Not as long as it should have. We are very divided as we are right now politically in this country. But America, that's why I believe we won't ever fall apart completely because there is something about being an American that when you attack us, when you come after us, we respond by saying we are Americans. Not Democrat, not Republican, not black, not white, not gay, not straight. None we are Americans. And uh, I hope it doesn't take a tragedy to get us back to that point again. Maybe the memory of that feeling uh, will get us there sooner rather than later. At least that's my hope. We'll be back on Monday. Uh, I appreciate you being with me this week, especially today. Uh, go back and listen to those guests on the podcast. It really is terrific what they had to say. Uh, hope you got a great weekend planned. I'll be back Monday morning at about 8. Until then, God bless.